Hello, and welcome to Capital Cast, a regular podcast of Capital News Illinois. I'm Peter Hancock. As part of our series focusing on this year's election candidates, today we talk with Appellate Court Justice Mary Kay O'Brien, who is running for the Illinois Supreme Court against incumbent Justice Michael K. Burke in the 3rd Judicial District. There are five judicial districts in Illinois from which Appellate Court and Supreme Court justices are chosen. The 1st District, which is Cook County, chooses three Supreme Court justices. The other four districts choose one each. State lawmakers just redrew the district boundaries for the first time in many years. The 3rd District now includes DuPage, Will, Kankakee, Iroquois, Grundy, LaSalle, and Bureau Counties. O'Brien, a Democrat, is a former state lawmaker who has served nearly 19 years on the 3rd District Appellate Court bench. My colleague Jerry Nowicki and I spoke by phone with Justice O'Brien about her background and qualifications and how she would approach the job if she is given a full 10-year term. Here now is that conversation. All right. First of all, Justice O'Brien, I want to say thank you for being here. Um, sure. We appreciate your willingness to discuss the race. Absolutely. And uh, we'll let you start us off with uh, your general pitch to voters and why you're the choice for Supreme Court. Well, thank you. Um, you know, I am obviously, my name is Mary Kay O'Brien. I have served on the appellate court for the third district for going on 19 years. It'll be 19 years this December. Um, you know, so I have had a unique opportunity in that time to, you know, serve as both our presiding judge. I think this is my third round as presiding judge and um, have a lot of administrative roles in that. I also serve on the legislative committee. The uh, I'm an alternate to the workers' comp commission. I serve on the Illinois Courts Commission, which is um, the disciplinary arm of the Judicial Inquiry Board. So when judges have trouble and they don't um, make work out some kind of an agreement with the Judicial Inquiry Board, then they have a trial. And uh, I am on the commission that um, serves as you know a, a jury, a commissioner uh, to do those. I also um, you know I'm on the Appellate Court Administrative Committee and all of those, um, experiences really help me not only in my casework, but also for the, the administrative duties that come with being on the Supreme Court, because we are um, a large administrative arm as well. And then I have a unique perspective from the fact that I practiced uh, small town law, and I was also a legislator. So I had, you know, clients, I had a small business, and I also had the opportunity to uh, come into contact with almost every area of the law. You know, one of the big things I did was we rewrote the state's grain insurance code because agriculture is still the number one industry in the state. And if, you know, these grain um, companies, they store your grain, which is like putting money in the bank. And when they fail, you know, the insurance um, code is supposed to operate like the FDIC. And, you know, so I was one of, you know, a small group of um, legislators that still had a farming background that, you know, when we had a large grain company that went bankrupt and took all of, you know, people's earnings, 
we rewrote that. I chaired the criminal law committee when we did death penalty reform. I, you know, expanded the statute of limitations for child sex offenders um, that had been almost completely repealed uh, as part of, you know, the Catholic Church sex abuse um, scandals. And so we we pushed back on that. I um, was there when they uh, started the centralized collection of child support and saw what happens when you turn on a system that's not prepared for it. And we had, you know, hundreds or tens of thousands anyway of people that weren't getting their child support and weren't getting credit for the support they were paying and how we peeled that back. I served on the audit commission, you know, so all of those things helped to frame um, both, you know, the, the type of cases that we'll deal with. But overall, the reason that I tell people they should vote for me is because what you want from a judge is somebody that's fair and impartial. And that, you know, while we think everyone understands what those terms mean, they really are a matter of perspective. And I think my, um, you know, upbringing, my background is, you know, working class family makes me um, the, the best person along with all of my unique experiences to make sure that literally, you know, the, the most important constitutional tenets of, that apply to the judicial branch, due process, that everyone gets their day in court, you have the opportunity to, you know, present your case, an equal opportunity that the laws do apply the same to everybody, are something that I value very much and that I will make sure that the public feels that, you know, this arm of democracy is working and functioning. And, you know, we all know dem democracy can be pretty fragile. You have to trust in, in the people that are the stakeholders. And I think I am well suited for that task. So you had mentioned your appellate work. I think this is a good time, Peter, for you to jump in with your question uh, that we were discussing earlier. Okay, yeah. Um, the Republicans have criticized you for, among other things, overturning the convictions of some violent criminals and recognizing that appellate judges often have to do that when there's a reversible error at trial. I'm just wondering, does that make it harder for appellate court judges to seek higher office? Just well, the, na the nature of the work there? I guess, I, I think that if anytime a judge is worried about um, a decision having a political impact, then maybe they're in the wrong profession. I have always believed, and you know, when, when people talk about technicalities, I remind people the Constitution is not a technicality. Our statutes and the Constitution of the state and of the United States guarantees, you know, certain processes and freedoms and requirements, um, you know, in the criminal and the civil context. And without the judiciary upholding those requirements, we really aren't doing our job. And that is first and foremost my job. And I think that, you know, we underestimate the electorate if you um, think that they can't understand why you have to do it. I always say, you know, we don't uphold the constitution for the individual maybe that's right in front of us. We have to uphold the constitution for everybody. You know, there was often a saying that, you know, bad facts make bad laws. And, you know, certainly, you know, when you are talking to somebody and they're like, oh, it looked like that person was guilty and they got a new trial. Well, 
you know, we have to look at what the Constitution says and those guarantees outside of the framework of what may have been, you know, at issue at trial, because, you know, we have to make sure that everyone is treated the same no matter what. That's what our Constitution requires. So, you know, I, I think that um, because of the nature of the work, you, ha you have to expect that, that there are going to be times when, you know, the trial courts, for whatever reason, something wasn't done correctly or, or somebody had inadequate counsel. And I think that citizens respect that that's our process. And, and if it was them, they would sure want to have a fair and impartial, you know, trial. So. Okay. I, uh, um, they have also raised the issue of your legislative experience. And I noted, on your campaign website, it says that uh, when you ran, you defeated an incumbent and secured a Democratic majority. Um, they allege that you had close ties with former House Speaker Michael Madigan. And just wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Uh, were the two of you close? Um, and does I that- I was a Democrat that was elected without Mike Madigan's help because the district was overwhelmingly Republican, 65%. So um, I didn't get help from the party in 1996 because they just didn't feel that the, it could be won. And they the voters returned me four times to the same seat that didn't change. The demographics of that district still didn't change. It's still my hometown. Um, you know, I ran as a Democrat, I'm a Democrat. Um, I worked very hard for my constituents and you know, it seems like that's the play of the, you know, they sort of want to divert from the issue at hand that, you know, I haven't served in the General Assembly for almost 20 years. Okay. So when you, you uh, discussed your experience and uh, your long list of qualifications, so we were looking at the Illinois State Bar Association's uh, ratings and uh, they have you recommended, but um, they have your opponent, uh, Justice Michael Burke, is highly recommended. Maybe a little bit better scores. I think all the scores were very respectable in some of the categories. But can you go through a little bit what that rating process is like? And then do you agree with the ratings uh, you and your opponent have received? I, you know, um, it's subjective and it is, they don't, um, they don't tell you, you know, it, it, there's a little bit, you know, there's a, a process where attorneys rate you and then they we have a, a personal interview and that's where the highly or recommended comes. I They don't discuss how they come about that. Um, and I don't know, it's not unusual. Um, they, you know, the day after I was interviewed, uh, I participated in the State Bar Association's Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Seminar where you know, they recognize that sometimes they have some problems with those issues. I don't know if that's part of it. Um, but I also always tell people that I'm not concerned with with what lawyers think. I'm concerned with what the parties, what those litigants think. And I, I think I have a pretty high rating with them. Um, I heard somebody noted that if both you and Judge Roachford win, uh, the court will, for the first time in state history, be majority female. Uh, you talked about equity and inclusion. Uh, do you think that's 
important. Um, having a diverse bench and a diverse Supreme Court. Oh, I think absolutely it's important to have, you know, as, as individuals and as professionals, the more experiences that we have, I think that the broader perspective that we have. And for people that come into the court system, um, I, I think that the, if they see people maybe that look more like them or have maybe the same ex life experiences that they have, I think that they feel that, you know, those judges maybe can, you know, empathize or understand a little bit about the shared background um, that they have when they come into court. Because, you know, we all come into every experience with our entire bag of life experiences there. And I, I certainly think that it's helpful. And it, it certainly, um, you know, helps, it, you know, because one of, you know, our canon of ethics requires that, you know, we avoid the appearance of impropriety. And to give the appearance of propriety would, to me, you know, it's, it's important that, you know, people feel like um, the bench represents uh, society at large. So um, you're going back to Justice Michael Burke. Um, he's been appointed to the seat. I think he was appointed in 2020 to uh, fulfill the seat of retiring Justice Thomas. And that's a thing Democrats have done too, most recently with Chief, Chief Justice Ann Burke retiring at the end of this year. Um, appointing her successor, Justice Cunningham. Um, to what extent do, do actions like that, justices retiring midterm, to appoint an incumbent to have them on the bench two years uh, before the next election, how do you think that affects a race? And do you think it's a practice that lawmakers or anyone should look to change? But in terms of the Illinois Supreme Court, um, where the, it's a seven person uh, you know, panel and you have to have a majority, it without appointing um, successors, they could run into you know, complete deadlock um, and, and no decisions being issued. Um, I, you know, I don't see um, I, you know, I, I guess, you know, certainly could, there could be options for that, but, um, you know, it, it's, it's a fact of, of life. I think it's, it, it doesn't prevent someone from um, then running like I'm doing, um, you know, Justice Burke uh, was appointed, not, you know, started out as an associate, he was appointed to the circuit court bench, he was appointed to the appellate court bench, and he was appointed to this, and he's never had an and opposite, you know, never had an opponent until now. So, um, you know, that's, it's certainly um, not without precedent. Right, now for our listeners, I'll note that uh, Justice, uh, Chief Justice uh, Ann Burke and Justice Michael Burke are not related. But, um, so just moving forward, um, I guess, what are the, are there, uh, particular um, decisions you've made that stick out in your mind as, as, as that have been particularly challenging to you on the bench? And then is there anything that you look back on thinking, oh, maybe I made a mistake here? Well, you know, once a case leaves 
us. You know, the Illinois Supreme Court can take those cases. Um, we are an appeal of right state. So uh, anything from the trial court that comes to us, um, we, we are required to take. And then if you don't like our decision, it is something that the Illinois Supreme Court um, must be asked through a petition for leave to appeal to take. Um, anytime we deal with decisions about um, you know, termination of parental rights, child custody, um, estate cases, those are, you know, very difficult cases. And I think, you know, you always second guess yourself, but at the end of the day, we do have to decide those issues. Um, we, we can't change the facts. We look at whether or not the trial court, um, acted within its you know discretionary power and its legal power maybe we would decide the case differently but that isn't that you know our our standard of review is whether or not any person you know and sitting in the trial courts could make that decision so you know there are a lot of cases that that, that bother me but it, that doesn't mean that i can change the outcome of it um you know of course there are cases that you know you think you know, did you do the right thing? Did you know? And ultimately, you have to just do your very best and and hope that you know that that you got it right. And I think that's what every judge in the state does because you know we are we are not dealing with you know this finite thing. We're dealing with human beings. Um, you were talking earlier about uh, the large administrative role that the Supreme Court has overseeing the whole judicial branch. Um, Notice there is an administrative office of the Illinois courts that uh, tracks a lot of data. And one of the things that has drawn some attention, and maybe you've seen this uh, from your position on the bench, is the fairly large number of people in certain kinds of cases, certain kinds of cases, large number of people appearing without representation. Uh, apparently happens a lot in family court, uh, divorce, child custody cases, orders of protection, and also I imagine in a lot of civil cases. And I'm just sort of wondering what role do you think you could play in addressing that and making representation more, more accessible to more litigants? Well, you know, we have, um, and I think the number, you know, the reasons are many and what we find downstate Illinois is that the number of lawyers are, are shrinking that there are communities that don't have nearly um, the vibrant legal community that they used to have um, and as you move north you know attorneys are becoming you know more expensive people uh, just feel like they can't afford that kind of represent you know to invest in that kind of representation um, the you know, access to justice commission and, and the Supreme Court worked very hard to um, simplify, you know, where you, the repository, if you're a self-represented litigant, where you can go to get information about, you know, how do you have to file a complaint? What do you have to do to get the other parties served? Um, and yet it's difficult because, you know, the court and the clerk's office, they aren't advocates. They can't give legal advice. They can't help, but you do want to make sure that 
when they come into court that they have what they need um, so that you're not continually uh, continuing a matter or frustrating them in their efforts to seek justice. Um, and, uh, you know, the Illinois State Bar Association has partnered um, trying to give grants to encourage people to start firms in small communities. I think we can continue to do that. And, and we can, and what we found during the pandemic is that we can do a very good job um, being remote. Uh, you know, some things can be done on Zoom um, that don't need to be in person. Mediation of some of these family cases um, that maybe can, can help out. But, you know, I, I think we need to look at whether or not we think there should be some um, type of funding to increase the services that our legal aid um, community can provide. Right now they are limited um, depending on where their funding source comes from. Because I don't think anyone goes to court wanting to represent themselves for the most part. They would rather have a competent attorney. So you're in a unique situation um, in this uh, district in that you're hoping to fill the seat of a justice who for the first time in Illinois was not retained by the voters. Um, that's Justice uh, Kilbride. So what do you read into the fact that the voters had, there was enough discontent not to uh, give a justice retention for another 10 year term and how does it change how you're approaching your effort to gain this seat? Well, I think it first it's important to, to remind um, everyone that in order to be retained, you need 60% of the vote. So it is a large task at any time. And Justice Kilbride received almost 58% of the vote. And, and you know, today's uh, political climate, you know, that would be considered a landslide if it was a general election. Um, that being said, you know, the problem with the retention is when there's a concerted effort to unseat someone like there was with Justice Kilbride um, and Ken, Ken Griffin's um, political uh, attacks on him, that there's no one for Justice Kilbride to counter, you know, it's not like he can say as an opponent, I mean, it's just him as a standalone. So I think that is, it, you know, there, there's not much to compare and contrast. Um, and I, I feel that that is always different in a contested election where there are, you know, there are differences between candidates, even judicial candidates where we really can't take positions on issues. Um, but I think, you know, differences in backgrounds and, and that kind of thing. So 10 years is obviously a long term. Um, so I wonder, um, do you think that the Kilbride uh, losing retention, does that is that foreboding in a sense for what's to come for judicial candidates in the future? Or is it an isolated incident? Well, I, I don't know about unseating someone, but certainly it wasn't an isolated incident um, you know, they had, you know, taken after him 10 years earlier. They had taken after um, uh, Justice Carmeier um, in 2014. So, you know, I do think that 
you know, that it, that's just the nature of where we're at in our political climate. Um, that unfortunately, judges are always now sort of in a more of a political climate than they were um, ever previously in our history. Um, I had a question along those lines. Um, Illinois is one of very few states that where Supreme Court justices are elected in partisan races. And I think it's the only state where they're elected from geographic districts. Um, as a candidate, you have, of course have to be like all candidates, you have to gather up support. Uh, you probably have a committee or somebody who does fundraising for you. And a lot of times those contributions come from contributions or endorsements come from people who might very well uh, have a case before the court at some point. And I'm sort of wondering how you separate the political function of running for office from the supposedly impartial uh, position you have to have on the court. Well, I think that the first thing is you have to make sure that as a candidate and as a you know jurist that you follow the canon of ethics, that anytime you feel that you can't be impartial, you need to recuse yourself. You need to um, make sure that you constantly monitor your yourself and any um, you know of, of your relationships to avoid you know what is it even the appearance of impropriety. I always say that you know you may be doing absolutely nothing wrong, but if people don't if they look at it and it doesn't pass the smell test, well then you know you're, you're not giving that the confidence the appearance that they deserve. So um, you have to just constantly be looking to see whether or not, you know, you're doing your job regardless of who likes it or who doesn't like it. So um, you had, as we discussed, your experience in the General Assembly um, how is running a judicial campaign different than running for state rep? Well, first of all, we cannot be involved in fundraising at all. So um, you have to really depend. And I, I am fortunate that I have some good friends and good family that stepped up and volunteered to help, you know, take over that, um, that function and Going in, you have a lot of long conversations about the type of, um, you know, even even less of, you know, like if, if that, this person were to give you a donation, send it back, you know, you know, just that they have to know and trust um, you to stay out of it, but you have to know and trust them to do the right thing. And that, that is a very personal relationship. I think it's very important. And what about uh, like stating positions on certain issues? I know there's level of, uh, you can't really do that. You can't really tell people I'm gonna vote this way. Right, you can say how you're gonna rule and you can't you know, get involved into immediate matters of controversy. And I sometimes feel that when you state that openly, I always I tell people when they say they wanna to talk to me, I said, well, you know, 
you'll probably do talking and I'll probably do listening because I'm not going to be able to, you know, tell you uh, how I'm going to rule on something or, to, you know, so um, in, in some respects, it's probably more frustrating for, for the voter than it is for the candidate because you, know, you can talk about your qualifications and, you know, tell people that, you know, this is, you know, who I am and where I come from. Um, but yeah, it is, it is limiting. It is, it can be very limiting. And, you know, the, the hardest part is, you know, not being caught up by something and be, you know, you have to constantly take a step back and, and take a breath and think, you know, you have to watch every, everything you say. And, you know, but those, but that's an important thing to do because what, when I, speak to groups, I always say, you know, I can't guarantee that I would agree with you. I can't guarantee, you know, I said, and you wouldn't want me to. And that always catches people by surprise. I said, because you wouldn't want to ever think that, you know, a, a court already has its mind made up, even if it was in their favor, because, you know, democracy doesn't work like that. Oh, I just had uh, one other uh, and back on the issue of running in partisan races. Um, one of the functions of the court, obviously, is to be a check and balance against the legislature. Uh, you're running as a Democrat. The legislature is controlled by Democrats. Um, do you think that makes it harder for you to be uh, independent on the bench and hold the legislature's feet to the fire? I think um, it, respective of, you know, what party is in power, I think because of the role of the judicial branch, um, it really doesn't matter who's in power. You're looking at whether or not what they pass, you know, is constitutionally firm or, you know, sound or unsound. And, you know, whether, you know, it was, it's not so much, whether we like the law, because that doesn't matter. It's whether or not it's constitutional, whether or not it's the right framework, what, you know, those are the important things um, because, you know, it doesn't matter. I mean, as, as a, whatever party you're from, I don't agree with anyone hundred percent of the time. So I, you know, I think that that part doesn't matter at all, but you have to look at whether or not what they did is meets, you know, constitutional muster. And if it does, then, you know, it isn't our role to say, you know, it's constitutional, but we don't like it. That doesn't matter. All right, Justice O'Brien, we know you're busy. So we, we thank you for your time. And if there's any closing closing statements to make, uh, feel free. But I, you know, I appreciate your time. And, you know, it is hard to uh, get voters excited about a judicial race. So I appreciate that that you are uh, willing to give us this uh, platform an opportunity for you know all the candidates to speak about it. Thanks a lot and uh, enjoy hopefully this first lovely weekend of fall. Well, thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you. That was Illinois Supreme Court candidate Mary Kay O'Brien. You can find our conversation with Republican incumbent Michael J. Burke at the same place you found this podcast. Until next time, this is Peter Hancock saying thank you for listening.